When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network, home to Metallica's official podcast, The Metallica Report, and many other fine shows. And I'm your host, Mark. Today's guests make me reminisce. Trevor and Laurent from Pelican join me to talk about a lot of stuff. There's so much history between them, and they talk about what music was the most impactful growing up, how they met, and the coolness of riding shotgun and playing cassettes. Their pre-Pelican bands were just as unique as Pelican, but with vocals and more damage. And while Pelican is an instrumental band, that wasn't planned out. But it worked, and the music scene in Chicago supported it, so they leaned into it. Trevor gives us the stupid story of the band's name and their desire not to be bitch-in-hold or defined by a genre. And while they are an instrumental band, there are a couple of songs with vocals. We get that story as well as the story about why Laurent left the band and what brought him back. Pelican has remixed and remastered their catalog from Hydrahead Records, and there are some great stories about that. But even better, there is new Pelican music in the works. And with that comes a more extensive tour. In the meantime, grab the remastered albums at thrilljockey.com or Pelican's Bandcamp page. Follow them at Pelican Song on Instagram and Twitter or X. Follow us at Performance Anxiety on Instagram and X or Twitter. You can support us with some coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety or merch purchases at performanceanx.threadless.com. Now let's get intimate with Trevor and Laurent of Pelican on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Trevor, you, you seem very comfortable with this. Just just go for it. I think your language is appropriate. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, here we go. Hey, this is Trevor and Laurent from Pelican on Performance Anxiety Podcast, uh, here to talk about our upcoming Thrill Jockey reissue of The Fire in Our Throats Will Beckon the Thaw out July 21st. I'm a natural, what can I say? <laughs> All right, there we go. Yeah, oh, team's all here. Awesome, awesome. All right, well, thank you guys for joining me. This is uh, this is really cool. I've been listening to Pelican for a while now, so this is awesome. Right on. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> oh, that was that. That's a good way to start out off. It was so good. You're you're choking on how good it was. Choking on your awesomeness. <laughs> so the way I like to start this off usually is to find out a little bit about how you guys got into music initially. Um, so was there growing up, was there a lot of music in the house? Were you listening to a lot with a parent, were your parents into it? What, what really piqued your interest in music? And uh, since Trevor did the intro, Laurent, we'll start with you. And you, you actually, well, you're born in yeah, France, maybe- right? 
Yeah. So I was going to make a joke that Trevor and I didn't actually grow up in the same household. <laughs> oh, so, I've, I've ruined it. <laughs> so you're gonna have to get two answers out of us, but yeah, I grew up in France. I'm still, I'm still technically from France, you know, even though I've moved quite a bit throughout my life, haven't spent the more than half my life now in the United States, but yeah. So born and raised in France, parents were, you know, fairly musical, not in terms of playing an instrument, but just playing music in the house, you know, it was the eighties. Um, we had a stereo, they played, they played music, you know, <laughs> top 50 stuff, a couple artists, you know, that they were into more, uh, more than others. Some, you know, that made more of an impression than, than others. But, but really for me, the, the most, the biggest sort of mile marker for my, my musical journey is uh, when I moved to South Korea, my dad was an expat worker. So he kind of relocated the family in the late eighties. Wow. And I would take the bus to school from where we lived. It was like an hour, hour and a half to get to the international school. And there was a kid on the bus who, his name was Tommy. He was from Finland and he was really into hard rock. Okay. And he would sit in the front seat, which I'm like, wow, this kid's sitting in the front seat. That's, that's cool. And he's older. <laughs> he's sitting in the front seat. And he would put his cassettes onto, uh, onto the bus. You know, he would literally play them through this little van that was like, you know, traversing through the, the streets to take us to school. And it would just be, you know, like the latest hard rock in the late eighties, a lot of glam rock and stuff. But, okay. uh, I think it forever embedded in me this, a, a love of cassettes and also that riding shotgun in a car playing a cassette is like the coolest thing that you can do. <laughs> and actually when I moved to, to the States and, and Trevor and I were friends, I often would say to him shotgun tape and, yeah, and, and recall it. <laughs> and request to sit in the front seat of his Volvo and just play whatever tapes we were into, you know, on our way to the record store. So anyway, long story short, into hard rock, you know, then wanting thrashier, heavier things, go the thrash route, death metal route. And then, you know, you, you explore all sorts of things. It was the nineties. Everything was, everything was, was awesome. Yeah. Um, musically too, you know, with the grunge explosion and whatever, but I really settled into a passion for hardcore music and punk rock, uh, in the latter half of my high school time. And so when I moved to the States and went to university and, and then met Trevor and stuff, eventually that would, that would have been the music that I was most into at the time was, would have been just like American hardcore and, and okay. punk rock. Was guitar the first instrument you learned how to play? Yeah, definitely wanted to be a guitarist, okay. you know, didn't take it super seriously when I first started you know, had a guitar teacher that my parents found when we were living there. And I was like, you know, can I learn power chords? And he's like, well, we want to start with other rudiments first. I was like, I really just <laughs> want to learn power chords, you know? So, and he was a, a guitar player at a hotel for like the hotel band. And he was from Argentina. And so he was like, a, you know, now regretfully, I'm like older. I'm like, you're such an idiot. You should have learned more interesting things from him. But I remember him trying really hard. So he taught me smoke on the water, you know, as like power chords. I was like, I don't know what that is. You oh. know, I'm like years old, <laughs> but uh, I'm looking for, you know, something a little more LA, you know, I was like showing him my magazines and he's like, I've never heard of any of these bands. Kind of kept up with the guitar for a little bit and then really started to take it more seriously when, when I was over here and had kind of a community in Chicago of people to be in bands with. So. Okay. So Trevor, what was going on in your house and was guitar the first thing that you learned how to play? Guitar was not the first thing that I learned how to play. 
but just to hit rewind, get back to the beginning, I'm, I'm the third child. So I am, was kind of a sponge for all of the older people in my house. So like both my mom and my dad were really into music. My mom, uh, came up kind of like in that Beatles, Peter, Paul, Mary, John Denver sort of sphere of, of things and kind of remained stuck there. Um, but was always into music. Um, my dad, who was into some of that stuff uh, as a kid. He was into like the Rolling Stones and, and shit like that. He got deeply into jazz as a teenager and that stuck with him through like uh, up until now. Well, now he's gotten really into classical music as well, but he has always been, has ha- always had a voracious musical appetite and we will bounce like albums back and forth and stuff. Oh, um, nice. So less interested in most of the things that I'm into. So we m- mainly center our conversations around jazz and stuff like that. And both of my older brothers were really into like what was going on at the time. Uh, So like looking back now, I'm actually really interested in how diverse their musical tastes were because I picked up on a lot of stuff, especially for my brother, Alan, like Iron Maiden uh, was in circulation, but then also like uh, modern English and New Order and like, just like kind of all over the map. And so like the first memory I have of being like, deeply invested in a song was when they got the new order bizarre love triangle 12 12 inch oh cool and like i became obsessed with it to the point where like i think i wore it out i would just play it again and again and again i was just like fucking obsessed with that melody but anyways so because music was sort of like in the backdrop of the family my dad played flute and we had a piano. So like there was like musical lessons growing up. Like I, I took piano lessons and my older brother, Michael had an acoustic guitar, but didn't really ever do much with it. And then by the time I got to middle school, I joined school band. Uh, I learned clarinet cause I wanted to become a saxophonist, but then it, I wasn't good enough at clarinet to, to make that <laughs> leap. So then I took up trombone which I kind of got to a certain point with, but, um, after seventh grade, uh, the band instructor left our school, like he quit. And then he was replaced by a new band teacher who nobody liked. Oh, I tried with him for a while and then I just ended up giving it up. Uh, and that's around the time that I decided I'm going to pick up guitar because I was really into like at that, by that point I was really into like REM and U2. And I was like, I got to figure out like how these guys are making this sound. But I went a full year before I figured out that a guitar had frets. And if you put, put, placed your fingers on the frets, you could make more notes than just playing the open string. So it was in the absence of lessons and an instructor, it took me quite a while to, to work my way through the instrument. Oh, Laurent's just shaking his head. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm fascinated by the bifurcation of our, uh, of our paths, you know? <laughs> We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Before you skip over this ad, give me one minute. Like most podcasts, I pick sponsors carefully and I use the products that advertise here. Pure Spectrum CBD is a product that has been really beneficial for me. They have a wide variety of great products that can be used on a daily or as needed basis. I've been using the tincture every day and it's been wonderful for easing anxiety. And I absolutely love the isolate. I use it instead of acetaminophen or ibuprofen. And it's worked so well for the relief of aches and pains. They also have soaks, lotions, salves, gummies, and more. Plus, an entire line for fitness recovery. They even have products for your pets. See everything they offer at PureSpectrumCBD.com. And if you have questions, they're there to help. They helped me when I had no idea where to start. After you fill your cart, use code PERFORMANCEANX for 15% off your purchase. Pure Spectrum CBD. Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD. Here I am like soaking up like scorpions and, you know, stuff like that. And you're like listening to, to New Order and Modern English with your older <laughs> brothers. It's, it's a miracle that our paths have crossed. <laughs> <laughs> so but, but we already did. You already touched on the cross section, which was in my yeah. freshman year in high school. I met a, a friend, Josh, who made me a mixtape that his uncle was friends with the guys in Naked Raygun. So he had gotten this injection of punk rock early from his uncle. And this mixtape was peppered with stuff that would become like the foundation of what I've become into, like Naked Raygun and Screeching Weasel. Uh, and from there, I discovered the Octune Chicago's Viacomp, which was like a panoply of like the most important Chicago punk bands at the time, like Cat and Jazz and Not Rebecca and all this stuff. Okay. And so that set me on my course uh, into punk rock uh, and eventually led to uh, volunteering for Food Not Bombs, which is where I met Laurent. Oh, that was going to be my next question is how the hell did you guys meet? <laughs> Your musical tastes were apparently so different. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we were much younger, but by the time I got to college, I I was on a similar sort of trajectory, you know, with with really absorbing punk rock and um and just hardcore in general, and then just you know looking inward more, like and less in terms of appreciating music, like in a hedonistic way, you know, it was more like who am I? What's my role? You know, uh, where am I going in this life? What can I glean from music? You know, and just sort of looking for things wow. that are going to be. I don't want to say the word spiritual because I really want to get away from that being, you know, but just, I mean, hardcore and, and punk rock in general feels like it, it becomes sort of a, a part of you, you know, and your, and your, and your day to day. And, um, 
is is more of, about more than you know just the cassette or the cd or whatever it's just like a way of life so but i was i was in evanston and you know it's a it's a fairly small college town so at this time like in the mid 90s you know you see people walking around and you're like i think that kids in the punk rock you know i can tell from the patches or whatever and they were yeah. this was a different time you know this is like pre-social media pre all that arguably pre-internet but or at least very beginning of internet like barely barely into the chat chat room era or whatever so you go up to right. people and you go hey cool man great band you know cool shirt whatever and then you just immediately start a friendship there's no like awkwardness there or whatever so i think it was just immediately like connecting to that community was was really cool and fairly pivotal. And there's a couple of institutions that are important that are obviously worth calling out. You know, uh, the fireside bowl was the venue where like you would just go to see all the shows, you know, you weren't 21 and over. That was like the, the ultimate, like all ages venue, you know, super cheap shows and stuff. And then, so everybody would kind of migrate to these areas. So you couldn't, you couldn't help, but like run into each other and, and easily form bonds and new people who knew people who knew people. So it wasn't long before you know, we would meet Larry and I had met him independently of Trevor at a separate show. You know, we were at a quicksand show. Um, oh, I love quicksand. Met a, you know, met a friend who then knew him and so on. And then eventually, you know, you, you all meet each other and you want to hang out. There you go. Yeah, that's somehow. There we go. It's, it's a little going. Yeah. Just got that the other day. Finally. So. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a great one. Yeah. So uh, just, I may edit that out, but who knows? It was the latest quicksand album. So it was a birthday present. Yeah. So were you guys in bands before forming Tusk together? We were in a couple of bands before that. Yeah. There was like a, a sort of pop punky band that we did called Monroe. And then uh, we did a band called Hajira 667 that turned into Yellow Road Priest. And Yellow Road Priest was our first band that like, we had a split seven inch and we were on a compilation. So it was like sort of the first band that we did that made it past the demo stage. Right. And I'm assuming these were all bands with vocals. Yeah. Yeah, they were. Yeah. to tusk so i heard that the band had a pretty good reputation for breaking things <laughs> accurate yeah it's it's good reputation a founded a founded reputation especially for the for the latter latter half of the of the existence when when jody was well arguably the more the most prolific and highest uh, profile moments of the band really when the, when the rec, you know, the, the full lengths were out and, and Jody was in the band after Simon, he was a, a front man that we, you know, had, we were friends with and, and had sort of loved his stage presence and other bands that he was doing. And when he, uh, when he joined, it was, it was pretty, yeah, it was like a love at first sight kind of deal. You know, he really brought like an energy that was, uh, just hard to walk away from, oh, yeah. but left, left a fair, fair trail of destruction occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> 
destruction was a venue. Some of it was self-destructive too, like him taking off. We played uh, the Biograph movie theater in Chicago. There's incredible footage of it that we start playing a song and he just starts running out into the audience across the tops of the seat until the mic cable runs out. And then his body just sort of recoils and oh. falls over. Oh my God. Yeah, he was uh, a loose cannon. Oh my, that sounds amazing. That was those must have been incredible shows. <laughs> yeah, memorable for sure. Yeah. Well, what I thought was interesting was I, I discovered you guys as Pelican before Tusk. So I, I found when um, uh, the Fire in Our Throats initially came out, I believe it, I was just listening to Pandora and it came up and I'm like... This is amazing. So I, I have a, a tendency to go back and find when I find a band I really really like, go back and and find the precursors to that band. You know, and earlier albums, earlier bands. And so when I got, I found the Tusk, the last Tusk album, I was actually quite surprised that there were vocals. I wasn't prepared for that. Yeah. But you guys must have gone through the opposite way. Obviously, you know, doing that, people liking Tusk and hearing Pelican, and and, and there's quite a difference between the two bands. I mean, was the reception I mean, pretty good of when you guys first started playing out live? Yeah, I mean, I I remember it as such. I don't. I, I think that you know part of being in in Chicago too, and there may be other factors at play, but there was just a general willingness to just be receptive to what your friends in the community were doing, you know, you okay. could go, you could go to a show and it would be just like a, a fairly simple, like sort of hardcore band. And then it would be like flying Lutenbachers or like whatever, you know, there was just like so much, just so much diversity in in the independent scene at the time that I think it made sense for a grind band at the time, if I can give it that descriptor, like a psychedelic grind band or something like that to just go, no, we're going to slow things down and do like a totally different do me your thing. It wasn't frowned upon. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't like that type of tribalism to it that, uh, wasn't accepting of that. It, it wasn't that kind of scene at all. I don't recall feeling any, anything like that. And certainly if anybody didn't like it, they were going to be respectful and, and nice about, it, you know? Yeah. And shout out to Brian Peterson for his curation at Fireside Bowl, which I think played a, a huge part in that because like he, the bills that he was putting together of local acts, it was really like such a diverse hodgepodge of bands. And I think it, it really cultivated that sort of atmosphere where it was like people were open to hearing different things. It was that really was interesting. Awesome diverse bills. Yeah. And, and one of the other things too, that stands out among many is the willingness of him as a booker to say, Hey, there's a big act coming through. I think you should play it be fun for you guys. You, you, you know, like he was confident that the, the bigger band would draw and rather than like kick the, the shows to, you know, the same opening band all the time. Like he really, he really seemed invested in diversifying uh, the bills and, and giving people equal, equal play on some of those shows, you know? And so that made for some, some really awesome first few shows as a band to get to do, which right away exposes you to, you know, the right sort of small budding audience. But even like, even some of the first few shows like opening for high on fire ISIS at the time, those were not very big shows, you know? Right. Uh, they, they would seem like they'd be in retrospect, but they weren't. I mean, you know, I think that first show we played with high on fire, I mean, Trevor, I can't remember there being, I mean, for sure it was under a hundred people. I can't even, yeah. 
I would say so too. Wow. Yeah. I so think, yeah. I would think the ISIS show too. ISIS can yeah, must've been under a hundred people. These were smaller shows. Um, but you know, those that 75 or a hundred people that are there are, are zeroed in on the kind of stuff that you're doing. Right. So it has, um, you know, then it has an impact or we, we, you know, we played a festival called the missions from the monolith in Ohio. And that festival was really like, it lit up a couple of message boards. It's like, you got to hear this band. They're doing this instrumental, somewhat melodic, but really heavy thing. Like I, th I think you dig it. And so people start talking about the first demo and so on. And this, so there was a real grassroots help from, from the scene at the time that I, I think plays out very differently than, uh, than it does sometimes for, for bands now, you know, who can sort of, you could really put something out there and it's just like out there. Then it's just kind of resharing a link. I think there was a different, different element element to it. Yeah. I would, I would agree with you for sure. Now, before we, we move on too far, I want to find, find out a little bit more about the origins of the band, because if I'm remembering correctly, that you guys didn't initially start Pelican as an instrumental band on purpose. How did you guys start writing as Pelican and, and how did you choose the name Pelican? Well, I was living in Trevor and interfere if something about the timeline seems off, you know, I, I, we will all remember the timeline a little bit differently in terms of how the pieces all sequence. Yeah. But I was living with Larry at the time, you know, so we're all in this band named Tusk. I was, you know, writing some stuff on the guitar that was slowed down. Um, and to and clarify, I, Laurent was the bass player in Tusk, yeah. but he was not ever a bass player previous to that band. He has always uh, been a guitar player. Okay. So he had been kind of shut because that had become the primary musical focus of our, of our little world. He had kind of been shut away from his primary instrument. Okay. So you yeah. can carry on. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I'm influenced by some different things, you know, writing slower stuff. I remember listening to a lot of goat snake at the time, you know, like some of the bands I mentioned earlier, like high on fire and ISIS were obviously important, you know, um, Larry's getting me into earth and some other things, you know, I, I think we all knew who cathedral was and stuff anyway. So these bands are sort of buzzing around, but it's really, a, it's really a combination of a bunch of different things. But so you're writing kind of slower stuff. And then, you know, we used to practice at Larry's house. So at some point I'm jamming a couple of these riffs with him. And then, you know, Trevor's there for practice and we sort of see it as like, well, let's just kind of do these couple things on the side, see what happens. And then it, it sort of, uh, you know, fl got flushed out as, as, um, as an actual proper band, you know? And I think that as we get further into it and some of the melodicism and the guitar stuff starts to come up, I think the interest with Trevor started to spark a bit more at that time. Uh, but Brian lived in the room, Brian being Larry's brother lived in the room besides where we practiced at his parents' house. So, you know, and he was like, I mean, he just was an immediate choice for, he also was a guitarist who got lumped into the bass role. Um, <laughs> Not an abundance of bass players, you know. <laughs> they weren't, you know. They, they apparently there was a there was a shortage of bass players at the time. But you know, you don't you don't set to do these bands in the same way that like we didn't go to the practice space and you know put up an ad on the wall that said like you know seeking skilled bass player capable of you know shredding and full mastery of scales or whatever. You know, I was like. <laughs> Who is the closest human being that can play a few notes that it, it'll <laughs> work? 
<laughs> but I think we, we looked at it as like a, let's just do it. Let's just write some stuff. You know, the, the name came after, I can't remember the point of origin itself, but I think we were probably looking for something that had some like airiness and, and I suppose some sort of natural kind of component, some flight element, you know, because okay. of the, the weight of the, of the music and the way that it had a transportive sort of quality, you know, it could have probably just as easily been Falcon or something like that. But I think we landed on something <laughs> different. Um, and what we did, you know, it's a, it's an interesting name. And I certainly at times I've like have a, a, a love affair with it where, and sometimes it'll be divisive. I'm like, you know, I don't, know exactly why we went with it but we just kind of did i remember the story of how we got the name but it is there you go. it's so stupid i'm hesitant to even repeat it <laughs> that's the best stories simon the first the original singer of tusk was staffing a pita look people for the ethical treatment of animals table okay. at a pretenders concert so it was him and a female affiliate and this dude kept coming to the table and hitting on her. And one of his failed lines was, I've got this really cool Pelican shirt. <laughs> and I think we were just hungry for a band name. And like, I was also on this trajectory of all these animal band names. So I was in Tusk. I was in Bionic Rat. I was in Enslaved Warthog. And so I was just like, yeah, Pelican, that's it. That's our band name. And I don't think anybody thought about it at all. And then no. retroactively, we started to see these patterns like, oh, yeah, it's like kind of majestic, but it's also kind of brutal because Pelicans are these brutal birds that like swoop down and, and you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's extremely moronic, but it also it, it's it suits us. <laughs> In both its majesty and its moron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I think that somebody pointed out recently when we were, we were doing some photos or something and they were like, you know, you obviously all enjoy making each other laugh. And I have to say like, that's certainly like a characteristic of us and our friendship, but I feel like most bands that have longevity don't take themselves too seriously. I mean, I think some bands must, you know, because of whatever their mission is, but I think our mission always made room for, for humor and, and, um, and that's a key piece of the friendship. So I'm not surprised to hear that story. I can see why I forgot it yes. <laughs> over time. Maybe I didn't broadcast the signal loud enough for that one, but I'll, I'll never forget. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget it now. Right. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Do you guys remember when Pelican became the focus over Tusk? I mean, was there a, a defining point where you said, all right, well, now Pelican is our main focus. We're putting Tusk down. I think something that Laurent spoke to earlier kind of suggests that, which is that, like he was saying, the community was really supportive of anything anyone in it was doing, like the hardcore scene. And like 
certainly right away, people would come to people that we knew from shows were coming to Pelican shows, the same folks that were at Tusk shows or whatever. But then there came a point fairly quickly in the band, I would say within a few shows where we started seeing people at the shows that we didn't know. And I think it just started generating its own audience that was beyond the confines of the limited DIY punk hardcore scene that we were a part of. We were starting to get offers to play venues that we hadn't played at before that just weren't part of our circle of, you know, and, uh, and it just, it wasn't ever a point where one took precedent over the other necessarily because we were kind of devoting the same amount of time to each but okay. certainly we could feel the traction uh, of pelican far more than tusk ever had tusk was always a very limited number of people that were into us even within that sort of punk scene just because we were so, so extreme and outre and weird and <laughs> <laughs> violent (laughs) yeah there's a there's a compositional outlier element to for sure to a lot of the tusk stuff that i think by design was like where can we go next with this you know how can we make this even even more out there um and and it sort of kept referencing itself because i mean except for even the last record that we did is almost an exercise and and just in craziness you know that being a record that was written really in well it performed in one take in the middle of the night after recording a pelican record um, But with Pelican, it was just, it was different. It was, you know, repetition, building melodies. It was going in in a completely different direction. Trevor and I's guitar work started to get, you know, very melodic very quickly and away from some of the more sort of doomy stoner rock stuff. I think quickly I shed sort of writing riffs that were like that the more Trevor and I composed together. Maybe in the beginning the riffs sort of had that. And, but by the time we had, you know, a a way that we were relating together musically and really writing at the same time, it it went in a very different direction. And you can, you can hear from the first EP due to about like half of Australasia that it's like one band. And then, you know, from the other half of Australasia through fine earth, it becomes like a totally different, exercise you know like australasia was written later on you know after drought for example to like march to the sea comes after and 
you know, red, red, amber, and so on these like longer compositions that are still, you know, heavy and, and rooted and, and metal and other modes and things like that. But away from some of the, from, from some of the Kaiasi kind of things that maybe were a bit more influential to me. And, and one other thing to, to understand too, is like Trevor, you know, we're all into, there's a, there's definitely a Venn diagram of things that we all share an affinity for, but there's a lot of stuff that we are not at all into in quite the same way. I think Trevor and I overlap on some things. Larry and I overlap on others. Brian and Trevor overlap on them. There's some overlaps. And then sometimes there's like, there's a lot of like, you listen to that. You know? <laughs> uh, maybe late, not so much now that we're, that we're a bit older, you know, there's like a generosity with, with being into things. But I, I remember Larry having visceral reactions to some of the things that <laughs> I was getting into, you know, to the point of almost, I was like, I feel like I'm personally offending him that I'm into this. <laughs> um, but you, you know, you're in the van all the time. You got to make room for each other's stuff, you know, yeah. but Trevor and I certainly enjoyed some of the proggier things at times and, and went in into some similar directions. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it was very much a guitar focused band there for, for a bit. And and the guitars really came first right into that, right from that Australasia fire in our throats. Um, after that, it starts to be a, a band that's a bit more of a, of a collective, but we certainly in the beginning were writing a lot of this stuff. You mentioned the humor and I, you know, keeping you guys together, keeping, you know, one of the reasons why the band has stayed together and, and you guys have been able to remain friends for so long. I don't know if it's intentional, but I kind of can see it in Song titles, for example, and, and album titles, The Fire in Our Throats Will Beckon the Thaw. Fire in, my, Fire in Our Throats on an instrumental album just kind of sounds funny to me. So I, I don't know. <laughs> that's, I don't know. How powerful, that's how powerful our instruments are. They, <laughs> they are. No, I mean, I, th- I actually think that there was a fair amount of se- seriousness to the aspirations with some of the song titles, or at least an, an earnestness, you know, in trying to be about something and stand for something and, and have some, some sort of authentication. It wasn't, it wasn't meant to be, to be comical, but in in retrospect, some of the song titles are, are highly subjective and and meant to be um, open for interpretation too, you know, which is one of the joys of having an instrumental band is we were never pigeonholed by a particular vocal style or or whatever anybody was, was saying, which I think was important for the, for the growth of the band, especially in the early days. I would say to someone like, to someone like Larry and certainly to our scene at the time, we were, we would look at bands like Don Cab and go, see, there's an instrumental band that can do what they want to do. And people don't look at it as like, you know, Don Cavalier, the X sounding band or whatever. It was just like, no, that's just like its own thing. Yeah. You know, that's, that's really, that's really where I think, I think, you know, maybe not conversationally, but certainly underneath the surface it would it was an aspiration to be perceived as just like hey it's pelican they're just gonna do what they do that's what it is sometimes it's gonna sound like this sometimes like this but we are just kind of on our own it's our own trip you know many ways it maintains that that sort of path and i I didn't mean to come across as you guys are being silly about the titles For for an instrumental band to be talking about fire in my throat, it's just, it, to me that sounds like something like I'm I'm expecting something more like Tusk, you know. And yeah, absolutely, man, it was awesome going back and listening to the albums again just to, to kind of prep for this. Nice, it was just because some of them I haven't heard in a little while because most most of them I have on 
CD and most of my CDs have been packed away because we moved around a lot for years. And yeah, so, yeah. so I just stream them as much as I can. So that's what I was doing today was just like, I did a, as much research on you guys as I could. And I'm like, okay, now it's time to re-familiarize myself with some of the older stuff. And so it was just, oh <laughs> man, it brought me back. Yeah. I don't, I don't often listen to old recordings. So putting the reissues together was really interesting for that same reason. And it was just like all stuff that I hadn't engaged with in a very long time. Oh, I'll bet. I'll bet. And we will kind of skim through some of the other things, but there are a couple, couple things I, I really am curious about because I do want to get to the, uh, to the reissues and all, um, and everything, you know, and what you guys are up to now. And pretty sure I hit admit. Let me see. There we go. All right. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So part two. So I was just talking to Trevor a little bit about uh, how how I much I enjoyed going back and listening to the the albums because some of them I hadn't listened to in a little while. I did my research on you guys as much as I could, and then I've like all day today. I'm like, all right, now it's time for me to refamiliarize myself with some of the stuff that I haven't heard in a little bit. And it oh, it it like it brought me back because Pelican was so unique for me at that time as I listened to a lot of stuff, a lot of heavier music and all, but there's, there's just not a ton of bands that are doing like super heavy, strictly instrumental music. So it sticks in my mind. And, and it's one of those things where it'll, you know, a certain time and place, a song will bring me back to a certain time and place. And when my kids were little listening to Pelican, we drive around in the car and be listening to Pelican with my kids in the car. So it's just awesome. Kinda, and now they're all going to college, so it's uh, it kind of brought me back to to that, them being little again. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I want to say, not about your kids. <laughs> I feel like that, that was a weird transition. <laughs> Thanks for the precursor. Yeah. There are so, there seems to be, and I could be wrong, but my perception of listening to music back then, getting into music, even like you know, wanting to get into things that I missed and things that were older is that there were, you know, there are a few thousand things to discover and get into, but now anybody that's like getting into music now in the, you know, 2020s or whatever, there are thousands of bands in this moment, thousands of bands yesterday, thousands of bands yeah. the day, but there are so many bands. It's, I guess, much harder to say, you know, things like there was no one else that sounded quite like you. I, f I feel like that's, that's reflective of the time too. You know, I think it gets harder, it gets harder and harder to have a sort of ability to do a completely unique thing. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And Pelican kind of made me search out other heavier instrumental bands like Russian circles and grails. And so that Pelican was the impetus for me to, to find other bands that I liked. So uh, I've got you to thank for that. Those are great bands. Thank you. Oh, I, yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of grails. So, uh, buds. Uh, I, I want to get Emil on one of these days. I've had a bunch of people who've worked with him on, but I haven't been able to get him on yet. He's, he's my buddy. I'll let him know. I want, I, I guess we should probably move forward a little bit because we're a little limited on time and I don't want to get bogged down, you know, much, much like Pelican's music. You don't, you guys are a harder band, but you don't get bogged down in the heaviness. There's a lot of 
energy and for lack of a better term, like I don't get, I don't feel doom or it's not a bummer listening to, to Pelican. There's a lot of energy and, and excitement and positivity, optimism in the music. If that makes sense. Ebullience. Oh, ebullience. Man, God, I love your, your vocabulary. I always pronounce ebullience. <laughs> ebullience? I don't know. I believe it is ebullience. <laughs> if so, it comes from, you know, every once in a while, I, because I grew up, uh, because I'm French, I'll, certain, certain words carry over, but sometimes I say them, I say them wrong, you know, like they, and, and so it, it has a French counterpart, you know, in terms of as, as a word for like this sort of, um, you know, emerging, like just presence and feeling and energy, you know, we don't, we don't really think about it too much, but it, I certainly, I think that we feel that when we're, when we're playing music together for sure, and seem to be constantly in forward motion. I think that that's a characteristic that is true to the band, especially now as we're sort of relearning some of the older material. Some of it just hasn't been explored in, in some time. A few compositions for sure that we're doing in the, on the few shows that we'll do this summer to celebrate the release of the, the Fire Night Oh, that's awesome. I, I think when the band started too, like we had like a set of influences that we were trying to kind of tap into that represented sort of like untapped territory for us. Like we were really into, because we came up in punk and hardcore, we weren't, we weren't playing that much slower stuff. So it was sort of like, what can we do that sounds like Caius or Goat Snake or Godflesh or Earth? And like all those bands, sure, they they have a more doomy and like depressive quality to their music, but sort of in the background of where we came from and what we were into was more stuff like Fugazi and like moving targets and like okay. all these like energized melodic punk bands. And I think naturally over time, sort of like what Laurent was touching on previously, that like at a certain point when he and I started collaborating more in the writing process and it started becoming more our own thing instead of an expression of these specific influences that we were trying to tap into, mm -hmm. that's sort of when we discovered our own sound. And that is sort of, I think, is representative of a lot of that other stuff that we were into during our come up. And this was just sort of like a convergence of all of these different influences that maybe hadn't manifested in quite the same way before. Oh, uh, interesting. Okay. Instrumental bands. I'm always curious as how you guys, as to how they come up with song titles. You write a song, somebody writes lyrics for it. The song title is fairly self-evident for <laughs> most cases. You guys, you know, it's, it's obviously put a lot of thought into the song titles. I mean, I would imagine a song title for an instrumental song is a lot more important and a little harder to come by for an instrumental band. You know what, though? It's a lot easier than writing a whole set of lyrics for a song. <laughs> That's a good point. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just sort of tap into what the song feels like. I don't think any of our songs are like necessarily about something because we want yeah. to be sort of open to our audience to like tap into their own experiences and kind of have their own manifest their own feelings about what the song might be about. Mm. But we sort of you, we can tap into the theme in the song and what it makes us feel and what it makes us uh, reflect on from our own lives. And then sort of like find a combination of words that helps codify that a bit. 
Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same thing as sort of an abstract painting that has a title to it. And then you read it when you're looking at it and you go, oh, that's what it's called. I can see that. Or that's interesting. I thought it would have been something completely different. Or, you know, you bring your own meaning and, and perspective and, and, and history to it. I think that's certainly the case for us. And a lot of it is born of conversation. And, you know, sometimes one of us more than another runs with a sort of a loose theme that may knock out a couple song titles for, but, but we sort of have generally waited for there to be a, a bunch of compositions before we start to sense some themes in them. And themes are felt certainly throughout the, um, the batch of songs, you know, and how they feel and they, they inform the song titles that come after. I don't think there's a single time when there's been a song title and then a song after it that I can remember. Okay. And you guys are mainly an instrumental band. There are two tracks that have vocals and, and one actually you've done what I figure is almost one of the hardest things to do in music is to pull off a song that's awesome with vocals and as an instrumental with the cliff, but there's also final breath, mm-hmm. both featuring former podcast guest, Alan Epley. Yeah. guys meet up with alan and, and and how did you decide to do two songs actually with vocals i mean we toured with his band the life and times during the touring process for the fire in our throats well back in the thaw we were all just really i mean cool. uh especially larry and brian were shiner fans from way back definitely i, I didn't know shiner before they introduced me okay. and then when they started doing uh the life and times that was just sort of like in constant rotation in the van and I don't know. It just felt like a match musically for us. Maybe not. Um, maybe it was more of a leap for others than for us, but for <laughs> us, it felt like, okay, this is a band that has like a very heavy rhythm section and melodic guitars on top of it, which seemed like very much in the same package as what we were doing. And we just forged an immediate and long running friendship with those guys uh, that persists to this day. And I think, you know, we had never set out to be an instrumental band. Right. Right. And when, and over the years we would always get asked like, what's why are you guys instrumental? Like, would you ever consider having vocals? And like, I think for us, we hit a point in the writing of Australasia where we had kind of accepted that we were an instrumental band or we had morphed into a deliberately instrumental band where we were writing songs that didn't really lend themselves to vocals because there was so much interplay between the guitars that would take up the space that would ordinarily be occupied by a vocalist. Right. So we always said when we would be asked about it is like, if we ever wrote a song that felt like it would benefit from vocals, we would not hesitate about finding somebody to sing on it. And when we were writing 
what we all come to need that album our fourth album brian wrote that song final breath and even though the song has three guitars on it because he wrote it on guitar so uh he laurent and i all wrote different uh inter interlocking guitar parts for the song oh, wow. it still felt like there was that space in it that lent it yeah. to the vocals and there was nobody that seemed more suited to the job than Alan, just because we had spent so much time with him. We loved his voice so much and we just knew that he would knock it out of the park. And uh, we were very pleasantly, uh, uh, you know, affirmed in that suspicion. <laughs> yeah. Surprise is not the right word for that. Cause no, <laughs> we were not, not surprised. I mean, how great it turned out was maybe a surprise in that it was just like even better than we had expected right laurent after that album what we all come to need you left the band and I, I, my understanding is that it was amicable and and you went on to pursue an other endeavors and and grow a family is is that what, what yeah. caused you to leave pelican no there's no there's no single no real single cause um okay. the timeline is is a little what we actually did an ep um oh that's right So, so there's, there's compositionally, there's stuff after there's also, you know, a really important anniversary show, uh, played and then some, some subsequent shows, no more, no more touring after the touring cycle for me of what we all come to need in terms of long, long-term touring. But yeah, I, I was, you know, actively at the time about to have my, or soon to have my first child and then wanting to find, you know, work and, uh, that would be stabilizing in a way. And there was also just, you know, th this feeling of entering a phase where I just wanted to, to pull back a little bit. I wasn't quite, I think getting out of the band, the things I wanted to, and just felt not so much, I mean, maybe in a compositional way too, but just in general felt tired and stressed at times about it. And I think maybe prematurely, you know, in some ways, like, took a pause that felt like it was the necessary one to do. I think the, the, the amicableness of it for sure is, you know, there's, there's a long standing friendship and a, and a brotherhood of, in ways with the other fellas. Um, and it's never, it's never an easy thing to do, but I think certainly for me, there was never any intention to, uh, there was a, a, a hope that it would not be, like, you know, it's going to be disruptive, but you know, you don't want it to be disruptive. So it certainly wasn't, wasn't fun, you know, and what, how quickly 10 years can really go by, yeah. uh, be told. But I think there was, at some point I just became really aware that I miss, I miss music and I miss those guys in a musical way, um, on top of, on top of the friendship and really started to, to seek out some reproachment there. You're not in terms of rejoining or anything like that, you know, because it had become its own, its own sort of new band at that time. Right. But 
I, I, you know, I remember reaching out to Trevor and, and wanting to just play music again. That was, a a bond musically and in terms of friendship that went back a long, long time that I wanted to sort of rekindle and, and do more with. But I think there was just awareness. There was just too much going on, you know? Um, yeah. and then Larry and I were also sort of trying to, to get something going a little bit, you know, and then obviously COVID kind of grinds yeah. things to, to a halt on a lot of levels, but there was just a, you know, some, just conversations happening at the time of like, just wanting to, you know, you, you, there's no room for, you know, Dallas was very much an active member of the band at the time too, of course. So it wasn't anything like that, but it was just like wanting to kind of be back in, in, in orbit, you know, if, if from a distance and to, to sort of see if there might be some music we could do down the line or whatever. But I think the reissue campaign around the new releases, uh, well, the, the reissues of the older releases on Thrill Jockey was, I think, when the frequency of conversation really started to become more elevated. Of Trevor, Larry, Brian, and myself talk, talking more just about music in general. So, so but yeah, I mean, I, I still, I still, you know, I'm active in the hospitality community and run three restaurants. Um, wow, and do that for for a living they're all the same. They're just in different buildings. So that's a little easier, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, I mean, I think it was a a community. I found like a a passion for at the time it was an easy move. Like I think it is for a lot of musicians to end up either bartending or, or doing stuff, you know, um, there's certainly some overlaps there, but I, I, I wanted something steady that would allow me to, to provide, you know, and it, it sort of gave me that. But in the end, I found that it was not comparable in many ways to, you know, the sheer delight, elation, and um, just immersiveness of being in a band. Well, I mean, really what could, you know, Um, everybody's on a different trip, but I found that in my life's path, that was, that was sorely missing. And so I was, you know, looking for, for some direction to sort of find my way back in, uh, into anything really in general, you know, some sort of musical activity was, was what I was seeking at the time. So had you put everything musical down for a while or were you still just kind of no you know you always play but i mean these things are harder sometimes than they than they can seem you know i mean i yeah i was doing exhaustive work you know busy all the time it's like you come home from closing the restaurant a few nights a week it's like 3 30 in the morning the last thing you're doing is like picking up your guitar and going like well i'm just gonna start another band from scratch you know like, <laughs> right. there was a couple of like valiant efforts at things at doing things like that, but nothing that really like concretely went beyond like a couple of recordings and things. Uh, it's really, you know, certainly wanted to, but, um, didn't really actively start writing again, actively, well, I would say actively stopped writing for a while. And then all of a sudden just couldn't stop writing. And so just put a bunch of stuff down, found myself frustrated in many ways that it all kind of sounded like Pelican. You know, if I look back, <laughs> <laughs> I, I really desperately tried to like tune to different tunings and stuff. I think the first time I showed Trevor something when I was hopeful that we'd do music again, I was like, Hey, we're going to, this is in C sharp. And he was like, okay. Guitar. <laughs> and I was like, you know, that's, you know, and I was aware that like, you know, that's how Sabbath tuned. And I was like, fuck, I'll just do something in C sharp. But then, you know, I wasn't, I never even ended up staying there. I just wanted to get back to B standard and stuff. So a lot of the time, a lot of the stuff just had that, that vibe. Um, I, you know, probably, dozens and dozens of things I've sort of recorded on my phone or whatever. And I've just is, you know, is around. I mean, I have all of it, but all of it, I don't, I've never did anything with it, you know? Right. So Dallas Turner 
jumped in for the Forever Becoming album and stayed, you know, toured with you guys. Was he writing with you guys too, or was he more more of yeah, a touring? So, kind of the timeline is that we we had all agreed in 2009 that we needed to take a step back. That the band wasn't functioning quite right uh, as a full time entity anymore. Uh, and that stemmed from not just the things that Laurent was talking about, about wanting some stability to start his family. I was also dealing with my mom had a terminal illness that ultimately took her life in 2012. And, um, and all of us just needed to hit reset. Like the band had hit a peak of popularity and was starting to decline a little bit. Like the shows were getting smaller. The record didn't seem the records didn't seem to be connecting the same way that they used to. We were fighting in the van all the time and we were just like, let's take a break. We, I think we went from doing like, I want to say like 80 to hundred shows a year to doing two shows in 2010. Wow. Uh, and we were really at a certain point adrift until Larry was like, what are we going to do with these two songs that we didn't record for the last record, which ended up being the Ataraxia Taraxis split. And everybody was just like, I don't know, we'll just do something with him at some point. Uh, I don't know. And he went into a studio and recorded drums and sent them to us. And he was like, okay, the ball's in your court now, guys. And so we ended up booking studio time and turning it into an EP. And the process of that really reinvigorated Brian and myself. Uh, we ended up writing another song in partnership for that EP that we fleshed out, uh, which was Taraxis. And then, um, that was a point where we felt like energized and ready to start writing again. Uh, the three of us, and we had a conference call with Laurent, which was the point where he expressed that he was kind of going in an opposite direction. And so what ended up happening was Brian and I started becoming a writing, writing partnership from there. And we wrote the bulk of forever becoming, uh, as a duo, with Larry coming out and heavily editing our very overstuffed compositions. Um, and then at a certain point we started wanting to play shows again. Dallas was somebody who we knew from the scene. Uh, he was in a fucking incredible band called Swan King. And we just knew that he had the capability of picking up our rather complicated songs, uh, rather quickly, which turned out to be the case. So we started playing shows with him. I, I'm a little fuzzy on the timeline for that. Maybe we were halfway through writing the album or something like this. And at a certain point we started playing some of those songs live and it was still sort of like they were written songs, but we were, and we were just handing him parts. But I think maybe two thirds uh, or three quarters of the way into writing the album, we decided to ask him to join as a full member of the band, not just as a touring member. Okay. Uh, and he helped us finish writing that album and he was a key part of writing nighttime stories. So that was a full collaboration between the four of us. Okay. Laurent's back 
And you mm-hmm. guys are working on re-releasing the... Now, is, is it going to be the full Hydra Head catalog, or is it just going to be selective albums? Just the full lengths. So Australasia came out last year, City of Echoes came out earlier this year, and Fire in Our Throats is coming in July. Okay, well, first of all, I want to find out why, how, uh, how did that come to be? How did, was it something time on your hands with uh, the pandemic shutting everything down or, or how did, how did that well, idea come to be? Well, yes, uh, that and Hydra head shutting down at ah. the same time. Well, so Aaron decided to fold the label and he released all the band's masters to the bands and told them that they were welcome to do whatever they wanted with their albums. Wow. Um, Thrill Jockey was on our short list of labels that we wanted to work with, uh, particularly, for, I think, for this trilogy of albums, because in a lot of ways, I think of that first those first three albums as like sort of our Chicago albums. After City of Echoes, Larry and Brian moved out to L.A. and mm-hmm. became a little bit more decentralized. Okay. But some something about those records feel very Chicago to me, and so it felt right to have them with a, a Chicago label, especially one as storied as, as thrill jockey. So that began a long process of, because we didn't want to just like throw them out into the world as they were. We felt like this was a opportune moment to sort of dig into our archives and find some of the things that had never been released before, like never released demos. remaster all this stuff and then uh with the fire in our throats we went back to the original tapes and digitized them and remixed the entire album that's awesome and to me what what i find is really interesting is it's being remixed by the person who did the original mixes yeah greg norman that's that's to me that sounds a little unusual well here's what it is is we were kind of doing all this archival work, digitizing like all the old tapes. And most of the old tapes were like two track mix downs and stuff like that. The fire in our throats was fully recorded uh, analog. Unlike a lot of the other albums. Oh, wow. So I was like, if we're really going to do the ar- the archival process properly, we should digitize the 24 track tapes and have like the individual tracks of all of this stuff in the event that we ever want to do something with them. And the people in town that are capable of digitizing analog tapes is Electrical Audio, which is Steve Albini's studio, which is where Greg Norman works. So we just asked Greg to do the digitization, right? Okay. And it was in the process of bouncing those two, those 24-track tapes down to digital that he was listening to them, and it caused him to reflect. And he was like, you know, like, I have so much more developed of a skill set now than I did when I mixed this record that I'm certain that I could do something much better with these tracks if I had another crack at it. So he came to us and suggested that at the same time that we were like, 
wrestling with the fact that we had never been fully happy with the mix of the fire in our throats. So we were kind of dealing with this fact that we were about to reissue this record that we felt was like slightly flawed. And he was like, Hey, let's improve this. So we were all just sort of on the same wavelength at the same time. And because it was the pandemic and there was time, yeah. you know, he, he took it upon himself to just sort of mix the record in his home studio and, and send the mixes over to us. And it was, it was a very lengthy months long process uh, of just yeah. kind of going through the tracks and like, I don't know, taking another crack at it. And I think because it was the original engineer that did it, he had a very developed understanding of what, not only all the original work that had gone into it and the intention of all of the tracks that were recorded, also just like a very developed sense of what we were going for. this re-release and the other two re-releases is there a chance of new music coming out with laurent back in 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 the in the mix yes we are deep in writing a new record nice oh i'd love to hear that and are there maybe touring plan i know you guys are are working on on a few shows but are, are there I guess maybe I should phrase it this way with families and all. Is there the possibility of a little more of an extended tour reaching a little farther out than the the regional stuff you've got planned right now? We're certainly going to be doing longer tours than we've been doing, but I think our intention is to try and finish writing a new record and release it before we take on anything too extensive because we think that there's going to be a lot more value both to our band and to fans if we have a new body of work to represent okay the shows that we're doing in august uh when the fire in our throats comes out those are intended to be kind of like the commemorative yeah yeah they're commemorative of the reissues and it's sort of like i think for us that the intention is to tr- kind of close out this retrospective era that we've been in for the last couple of years and then turn our sights firmly towards the future. This sounds amazing to me. I'm, I'm anxious to get the, uh, the reissue of the fire in our throats. I'm excited to hear about some new music. I'm pissed that I don't live closer to you guys. Cause I'd love to see a show. So maybe with, with a new album, you guys can come closer to DC and I can catch a show, which would be amazing. I certainly hope so. Fuck yeah. I mean, we love playing DC. So that's without a question that's going to happen. Awesome. Where can everybody find the reissues and pick them up and support you guys and, and keep a, an eye on new music and hopefully upcoming tours? All of the reissues are available from the Thrill Jockey website. They're also on our Bandcamp page. They're on all the legitimate streaming services they're probably on some illegitimate streaming services <laughs> um so you know they're they're around just google pelican band don't just only, yeah. don't 
only Google the word Pelican because who knows what you'll fucking find. There's <laughs> art cases. There's a basketball team. You know, there's all kinds of other Pelicans out there. I'm only sure. Except, I'm except sure the real deal. No substitutes. I'm sure it'll something on Pornhub will show up. You know? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> Please. <laughs> what? what, what <laughs> I made myself joke. One platform that we're not on. I can get yeah. <laughs> So uh, we're the social media presence. How, uh, um, did you guys just give me that? Because I'm sorry, I got I got thrown off on on uh, Pelican Pornhub. <laughs> what are what are the social media accounts for you guys? <laughs> we're we're on all the social media apps. We're even on TikTok now. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah we're wow. 21st century. That's awesome. Jeez. I still don't know what to do with TikTok. I'm told I need to be on it, but I, I, I don't understand it. So I don't know. Let's see. So <laughs> well, it's coming for you. It is. It's going to run me over pretty soon because uh podcast network is uh, really wants us, everybody on there so they can promote things. So that, Cause it, this has been a blast. It's been, it, it's really wonderful to, to speak with you guys. I've been listening for so long. It's just, this is one of the things I love about this podcast is it gives me the opportunity to thank you guys for the music that have, has been the soundtrack to a great chunk of my life with my family and my kids growing up and, and Pelican has been right there with everything. That's great to hear. That's very meaningful. Thank you so much. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.